Well, good morning. I want to welcome those of you, especially who are runners camp guests. We're so glad that you're here and really thankful that your kids could join us for a great week down at the camp. On Sunday mornings, we are in the midst of a series called Connecting the Dots, where we are working through the entire Bible uh, from beginning to end over about six months on Sunday mornings to try to get a sense for what God has been doing and is doing in history so that we get a better sense for what He's doing in our day and what He longs to do in our lives. Towards that end, we've kind of seen the Bible to be revolving around this kind of theme, that the Bible tells the story of the loving and awesome words and deeds of God to redeem all of his creation, especially his wayward and sinful people from amongst all peoples for his own name's sake. That God is on this redemptive rescue mission. And at this point in the story, we're midway through the Old Testament prophets, and they bring a powerful message of rescue to a people who've gotten off track, way off track. You can think of it visually like this, okay? This guy was driving his truck down this road, and he came through this guardrail and went end over end over that culvert and landed right here. To give you a sense of perspective... He came through that guardrail, went end over end over that culvert, and landed here on the edge of that precipice. And that's where the prophets come in. They catch us on the edge, the spiritual edge of the precipice, and they bring a strong message of repentance and rescue. They urge us, don't take one more step, you know, Don't open the wrong door of that truck. Get out on this side. That's what the prophets do. And that's why their words are so strong. Because they understand where we have taken ourselves when we've gotten off track. Listen to the the urgency in Ezekiel. His message. He says, As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? The prophets are urging us to get back on track with God and His loving, redemptive mission in our day. Um, Towards that end today, we're going to look at three of those prophets and hear briefly their message. Um, Obadiah, Jonah, and Micah. They are in the sticky pages of your Bible. If you'd like to try to find them, I'll pray for us and we'll get started. Okay? Lord God, bring mercy to us today that we might see you fresh in all your, all your glory that you've brought to us through these men's words they wrote down, these messages from your prophets. God, help us to see and hear well and to see our own lives and respond well. For your name's sake, we pray. Amen. Well, the first of those three prophets is the book of Obadiah. And if you wanted to to have the uh, bragging rights to say, I read a book of the Bible today, Obadiah would be a good one. 
as a one chapter, 21 verses, I think you can do that. So you could read the book of Obadiah in just a couple of minutes. His message is one of judgment against one of Israel's neighbors, the, the nation of Edom, the descendants of Esau. Um, listen to some of his strong words. He says, Though you soar, Edom, though you soar like the eagle and make your nest amongst the stars, from there I'll bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you, would, would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave you a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his treasures pillaged. There will be no survivors from the house of Esau. The Lord has spoken. Um, you know, it's a message of complete and total judgment and destruction. And if you were to look at a modern-day map, try to find the Edomites, they don't exist anymore. About the first century, about the time of Christ, shortly thereafter, they ceased to exist as a people and have never existed since. God's judgment came true, as it always does. Um, it's interesting, they were indicted for their arrogance and for gloating over the misfortune of other peoples, particularly the misfortune of God's people. In the only chapter of Obadiah, chapter 1, verse 10, it says, Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, God's people Israel, you'll be covered with shame, Edom. You'll be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you, you were like one of them. You should not look down on your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. So they are being judged for essentially pride and gloating. And you, know, you read the severity of those judgments, and, um, and they're expanded even to all peoples. It says the day of the Lord, that day, great day of judgment, is near for all nations, for all peoples. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. And it seems a bit much for merely being prideful and gloating when someone else takes a fall. But what, what I want you to see is that our sin takes us closer to that cliff of the judgment of God than, than we think. And we desperately need to heed the urging of the prophets to turn back away from those patterns to our God. Because that next step, they say, could be a doozy. It's a step you do not want to take. Right? Now, the remaining two prophets of Jonah and Micah we want to hear from today Though Micah has this same strong prophetic judgment message, they, they have more redemptive themes probably embedded in them. Um, to get a sense for where these books might fit in, Obadiah is hard to date. We really don't know exactly when he wrote. He might have written early, around 840, just after God's kingdom broke into those two groups, or as late as the fall of that southern kingdom in 586. My source tells me to take the early date. Okay. Um, the book of Jonah happens before Israel falls into captivity to the Assyrian nation. The book of Micah happens right around that time as well, maybe just a wee bit after, but right about the time when Israel's going 
into captivity by the Assyrians. Now Jonah starts this way. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh, essentially the capital of that Assyrian nation, and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. So essentially, when Jonah opens, we have a runaway prophet. Okay? It, geographically, it would look like this. If, if Jonah lived in Raleigh, God geographically going to Nineveh is the equivalent of going, geographically, maybe morally, the equivalent of going to New York, New York City. Okay? But what he does, he does not go to New York. He goes to L.A. That's essentially what he's doing here geographically. Go northeast, he goes west a couple thousand miles because he is running from the Lord. Now, why would a prophet run from the Lord? Now, the obvious answer is fear because the Assyrians were a terrible people. And the answer's right. It was fear, but it was a different fear. His fear is uncovered in the fourth chapter of the book of Jonah, where he prays to the Lord, Jonah does, and he says, Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That's why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. This is why. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Jonah was afraid that God would forgive and extend mercy to the Ninevites. And he did not want that to happen. Jonah's heart was hard towards the Ninevites, and he did not want them to receive God's mercy. He was afraid God would give them mercy. And he had good reason for that. Some of the quotes that come from the Assyrian kings of this era are shocking. I'll give you a couple of names just so you don't end up naming your children after these guys. Asher Banipal. Don't ever name your child Asher Banipal, okay? This is what he said. He boasted that his officials hung Egyptian courses on stakes, stripped off their skins, and covered the city walls with them. Another guy, um, Shalmaneser, another name to cross off your short list. A pyramid of heads I reared in front of his city. Their youths and their maidens I burnt up in the flames. Sennacherib, I cut their throats like lambs. I cut off their precious lives as one cuts a string. See, they, they weren't really nice people, the Ninevites. And Jonah had no interest in seeing God's mercy extended to them. And so he ran away. Back in chapter 1, he ran away from the Lord. He headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa. He found a ship paid the fare, went aboard, sailed for Tarshish, the opposite direction, to flee from the Lord. But you know what's interesting? In, in fleeing the Ninevites, extending grace to the Ninevites, he ends up having to flee from the Lord. That's how tangled up love of God and love of neighbor are. Resist loving your neighbor and you can't love God. Jesus tangles these two up inseparably in the New Testament when he's, somebody asks him, of all the commandments, Jesus, which was the most important? Most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, 
The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, as we sang this morning. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. Jesus refuses to separate those two. They're all tangled up together. Love of God requires love of neighbor. Um, In the New Testament later, it says, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. Um, Love of God and love of neighbor are inseparably tangled up. And Jonah's unwillingness to love the Ninevites causes him to flee from God. But God pursues Jonah. And he gets these series of little invitations, Jonah does, to repent and do what God has asked him to do. If you're familiar with the story, he gets on that ship, heads the other direction, and God brings, God appoints a great storm, a great wind to come. And this storm is threatening the lives of that, vessel, of that ship and her uh, sailors. What's Jonah do when that storm comes? He sleeps right through it. Um, The captain of that ship rouses Jonah and eerily asks him to call on his God for mercy upon this group of pagan, non-Israelite sailors. Um, This is the very thing Jonah's running from. He doesn't want to extend mercy to non-Israelites. And God has him in this place where the captain of the ship wakes him up and asks him to pray for mercy on these non-Israelite sailors. God is after him. He's sending him messages. Um, Lots are cast to find out who's causing the trouble on the ship. And the lot falls on, guess who? Jonah. He ignores it. Finally, God speaks to him through these sailors, through their rebuke. They're terrified, and they ask Jonah, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. See, they understood something. That sin, self-centered sin, has innocent victims. These sailors' lives are endangered by Jonah's disobedience. See, that's always true. Sinful self-indulgent comes with a price. We don't sin in a vacuum. It impacts other innocent people. It may even imperil their lives. So again, God speaks to Jonah one last time through the sailors and through their example. The men, instead of Jonah requested to be thrown overboard, that he was the source of the problem. And they didn't want to do that. They did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. And they cried to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. See, these pagan sailors are so concerned over one life when Jonah is callous to hundreds of thousands of lives. They took Jonah, those sailors did, they threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. And at this, those sailors greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Notice again that in your Bibles and on the screen there that Lord is capitalized. It represents the name of God, Yahweh. 
It's not some generic God. These sailors, these pagan sailors now, fear Yahweh, Jonah's God. And they offer sacrifice to Yahweh, Jonah's God. The sailors get the message even though Jonah does not. And God, again, uses Jonah to accomplish the very thing that he didn't want to do. Bring grace to non-Israelites. Okay. Again and again, through all these God-appointed circumstances, God is calling out to Jonah to align his life with the compassion, compassionate mission of God for all peoples. Soften your heart, Jonah. Return, return to my ways. And I wonder this morning, could it be that's why you're here today so that you can hear God say through one more voice, one more time, the same thing to you? One more voice calling you one more time to turn from that vice, to turn from your apathy, to turn from your bitterness, to turn from your self-centeredness, Maybe it's one more call to be a message bearer to someone you don't want to talk to, to go somewhere you don't want to go. You're hearing it one more time this morning. By God's grace. You know, Jonah went from that ship to a storm to being thrown overboard to the belly of a fish. It says in the last verse of chapter 1, the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. From ship to storm to thrown overboard to the belly of the great fish, how severe will the invitations have to come to you before you respond to what God's calling you to do? There's a progression in the invitation from God. They get more and more severe in Jonah's life. Um, A word of advice, earlier is better. Okay, Respond earlier you'll like it better. Because it gets to the point, and don't mistake this, that the belly of the fish is God's grace to Jonah, not his judgment. Jonah's glad for that fish. In chapter 2, from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, and he said, in my distress, I called out to the Lord, and he answered me. He sent a fish to swallow me. From the depths of the grave I called for help, and you listened to my cry. Thank God for the belly of a fish, Jonah says. Most of us would think our worst day would be to be swallowed by a fish and be in its slimy belly. But but don't, don't miss it here, that the most severe form of God's mercy is always to be preferred to the consequences of our own sin. Okay? The most severe form of God's mercy is always to be preferred to the consequences of our own sin. This is God's mercy. And it continues to Jonah in chapter 3 when the word of the Lord comes to him a second time and he's sent to Nineveh a second time. Essentially, the book starts over in chapter 3. Jonah gets a do-over from God. If you're a golfer, a golfer, Jonah, Jonah gets a mulligan is what he gets here. And John Ortberg uh, writes about the beauty of mulligans in life. 
He's out on the golf course and he, his friends grant him a mulligan and he says, I, I started thinking, wouldn't it be wonderful to be able to take mulligans in other areas of life? Imagine, a policeman stops you for speeding. You just tear the ticket up. Thanks, officer. I'll be taking my mulligan. <laughs> right you are, he says. The bank tells you your check bounce. Mulligan, you tell them. No problem, they say. In an argument with a friend, you say something you shouldn't. Mulligan. Botch a test, blow a presentation at work, invest in the wrong company, commit an embarrassing faux pas, forget to send in taxes, just take a mulligan. No questions asked, no penalty assigned. That's what happens to Jonah. He gets a mulligan. He gets a do-over from God. And the book starts over in chapter 3. And he is sent to Nineveh. And he goes. Um, In chapter 3, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Um, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day Jonah started into the city, he proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That one short phrase is all we know that he proclaimed. And look how these evil Assyrians responded. The Ninevites believed God. And they declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. The entire city, a city of 120,000, we'll find out. At least. From the pauper to the king, they all repent when Jonah walks in and says, "Um, excuse me, 40 days and the city's going to be overthrown. Just widespread repentance and turning from their sin. And when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. The entire city repents Spared the wrath of God. Grace for Nineveh. And Jonah is ticked. He's absolutely enraged that this would happen. This is where we read earlier in chapter 4. Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. And he prayed to the Lord, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That, I, that was why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O oh Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. Jonah has a bit of a melodramatic streak. But don't, don't miss what he's saying here. Um, Jonah, having received grace, life-saving grace, when God rescued him from the depths, now does not want life-saving grace extended to the Ninevites. He just personally experienced God's grace and compassion and slowness to anger and his bountiful love and his willingness to relent concerning calamity personally, Jonah did. And he is now outraged that God would show himself this way to the Ninevites. See, he's at odds with God now. He can't even delight in God's goodness. He'd rather die, he said, than align himself with God's good character and purposes. See, this is where, this is where what I'll call grace blockage leads. Okay. You, 
you dam up God's grace at the edge of your property and don't let it flow onto somebody else's. And this is where it leads. You're unable to embrace the goodness and mercy of God and your heart can actually become embittered towards it and you can despair of life itself in the severest cases. Jonah has received grace, but he will not pass it on. Jonah wants grace for me, but not for them. And I wonder if our purebred Israelite prophet isn't feeling a little bit entitled here, a little bit of merit. He is, after all, an Israelite. He is, after all, a prophet, although a little bit delinquent, but he is a prophet. He is surely superior to the Ninevites and more deserving of grace than they. Could that possibly sound familiar? After all, we're Americans, good Americans, salt-of-the-earth Americans, middle-class Americans, hard-working, moral, generally, Americans. Doesn't it make sense for God to be merciful to us? I mean, doesn't it just make sense? Our motto, grace for good people. Grace for people who deserve it, right? Like us. And if that doesn't, if that sounds silly to you, it should. Grace is undeserved favor. We need to listen very closely to what God has to say to Jonah. The Lord replies in verse 4 of the fourth chapter, Jonah, have, have you any right to be angry? Have you, Jonah, any right to be angry? You, my rebellious prophet who ran 180 degrees away from my instructions, who endangered sailors' lives and entire cities' lives with your disobedience, you... Jonah, whose life I spared miraculously in the midst of your disobedience by pure grace, do you have any right to be angry at my display of grace towards the Ninevites? Do you have any right to dam up grace at the edge of your property, Jonah? See, God is asking Jonah, and he's asking us to do two things. First, acknowledge grace. Everything good that comes to us is by grace. Our intelligence, our wisdom, our strength, our luck. It's all grace. It's given to us by God. Acknowledge grace and secondly, pass it on. Don't dam it up at the edge of your property. That's not the way grace is supposed to work because those two things are inseparably linked. If you dam up grace at the edge of your property, if you don't acknowledge it and pass it on, it will lead you to where Jonah is, despair and at odds with God. It will make us miserable folk to dam up grace in such a fashion. See, unless you wish grace and are willing even to bear grace to your enemies, then you don't understand the grace that you have received. From a very, very holy God. Well, Jonah goes up, our story continues, and he sits on a hill overlooking the city of Nineveh to see if God has come to his senses and to watch and see if judgment on Nineveh is actually going to unfold as he told God it should happen. 
And God, God is about to set Jonah up. And he does this first by appointing a plant. The Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. Jonah's up on the hill watching to see what happens to the city. And all of a sudden, this vine grows up, kind of like kudzu, just shoots right up, shades him. He is so happy at this kudzu-like gourd that has grown up in miraculously in just one day. Well, the next morning, at dawn the next day, God appointed a worm. God is so sovereign and he's so setting Jonah up. First he grows his plant, then he sends a worm. Worm on a mission for God. Choose the vine. Some of you can take heart in that. Okay? Choose the vine so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that Jonah's head so that he grew faint. And True to form, he wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. So great is the injustice I am enduring with my gourd, Jonah says. And what, what God has done here is construct a situation where Jonah has experienced concern for something, compassion for something, and then the loss of something. In verse 9, God says to Jonah, Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, Jonah said. I'm angry enough to die. <laughs> See, earlier Jonah wanted to die because God had extended mercy to the Ninevites. And now he wants to die because no mercy has been shown to his gourd. Um, and so God says to him, you've been concerned about this vine, Jonah, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh, Jonah, has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. Many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? See, God is saying to Jonah, you are right, Jonah, to be concerned about the vine. But am I not more right to be concerned about this great city? And 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left, probably that means they're spiritually ignorant. They've never heard about the grace of God. They don't know right from left about God's grace. Jonah, they are a people who have never heard. Jonah, God's saying to Jonah, Jonah, you're concerned about a plant that you had no investment in, that wasn't even yours, that lived only a day. Jonah, can you understand now why I'm concerned about a great city full of 120,000 people that I created, that I love, who will live not just for one day, but for all eternity? Do you get it, Jonah? We never know if Jonah got it. That's really beside the point. The question is, do you get it? See, the book of Jonah invites us to share the compassionate mission of God 
for those who are far from God, even for our enemies. Jonah's heart was hard towards the Ninevites, and he did not want them to receive God's mercy. Who are your Ninevites? Who, in the dark, hidden places of your heart, would you rather see judged than receive mercy? Who are your Ninevites? Are they a race? Blacks, maybe? Hispanics? Maybe Arabs? Or maybe they're a group in our own population. Maybe homosexuals. Maybe those dang liberals. Don't care about them. Or maybe it's just one person. Maybe it's the spouse that left you. Maybe it's the parent who abused you or the boss who overlooked you. Where are you damning up grace in your life? At whose door are you refusing and hoping that God doesn't ask you to let the grace of God flow through you into them? Are there people to whom you will not speak? Are there places where you pray you won't have to go? That's the message of Jonah. And the prophet Micah follows right on his heels and he calls out to us to repent and to treat better with more grace those we would naturally despise or defraud, especially the poor. And he tells us, as we've already read, how it is that we're supposed to be living our lives. Um, In chapter 6, Micah says, What shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God with? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Or will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Act justly. Love mercy. Cherish it. Share it. And walk humbly with your God. As we've already read, he closes with this vivid, Micah does this vivid portrayal of God's grace. Who's a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. What a great picture when a compassionate God takes your sins and hurls them into the depths of the sea. How do you get that kind of grace? Listen again to what John Ortberg writes as he's still musing about those mulligans. He says, well, where do we get the power and the right for do-overs. He said, I I shanked another ball and my friend said the same thing, take another mulligan. I said, are you sure? He said, of course. We do it all the time. At this point, he said, I got a little concerned for the integrity of the game. 
If you just keep on taking mulligans, the score really doesn't mean anything, especially if, like me, you hit a lot of bad shots. I hit balls into the water, out of bounds. I used up four mulligans on the first hole. This is the reason we're so liberal with mulligans that day was because the game didn't count. We weren't really taking it seriously. We just wanted to have a good score. When it comes to keeping score, golfers usually hold to a level of truth-telling, honesty, and integrity held by loan sharks and bookies. (laughs) Golfers, he says, make fishermen look honest. (laughs) The truth is we can agree not to write down a shot, but we're not really fooling anybody. However, when the game counts, it's a different story. When the game counts, there must be justice. If you're playing Tiger Woods for the Masters and you're tied on the final hole and you shank your drive, you can't say, "Um, I believe I'll take a mulligan here. There are no mulligans on the PGA Tour. The integrity of the game counts. The rules matter. This is the real thing. You play the ball where it lies. Hit in the water, you take the penalty. Reap what you sow. There must be justice. Your score is a brutally honest reflection of what you did. He says, you understand the point. Life matters. The rules count. If God is any kind of God, he must be just. He can't say, Hitler, take a mulligan. We just won't count the Holocaust. Won't write it down. Let's pretend it never happened. Someone must keep score of the Dachau's and the Tiananmen Squares and the Bosnia's and the drive-by shootings and abused children and oppressed poor of this world. There must one day be justice for the world to make any sense at all. And the Bible says there will be. That's what the prophets have been saying. There will be. The Bible says justice will roll like a river one day. We all give an account for the sin and wrongdoing in our lives. And that includes you and me we will all sign the scorecard. Then he says, the Bible says the place where God's unswerving commitment to justice and God's undying longing to forgive meet is the cross. The cross is the declaration of God's hatred of sin and all the damage sin does. The cross is the declaration of God's love for sinners and his insatiable appetite to redeem them. And Micah points towards that cross, towards that hope. 700 years before Christ came, he's, he's pointing us, he's cluing us. He's saying, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. There's coming a ruler out of where? Little Bethlehem. And he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely. For then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, to all peoples, and he will be their peace. There's peace with God for sinners at the cross by the work that this foretold king does in bearing the sins that are not his own. Peace with God can happen to us when we find mercy in his son, the king Micah predicted, Jesus the Christ. Will you follow him today? Will you trust him today to bring God's grace of forgiveness for your sins to you by his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead on that third day. 
Will you trust him to use you to share God's grace with a people who've never heard, even with your enemies? As we close our service, the worship team's gonna come, and if God's speaking to you about how you need grace today, we're gonna, we're gonna take a pause after the second stanza of the hymn. And if you've made your way down front at that point in time, we want to pause and pray God's grace for you in whatever you're facing. So if you'll stand with us, let's worship our great king. And if God's speaking to you, if you'll make your way down by that second stanza, we want to pray specifically for you.